Wow! Just when you thought you were going to have a third week of spring break, boom, comes the taillights pot class. That's right, kids. I know you are out there yearning for the learning, and I've got the fire to keep on burning, baby. Wow! Quarantine? Coronavirus? Any of that stopping you? It might have stopped the star test. But as my students know, the value and importance of learning history goes far beyond a silly test. It's the key to freedom. The only way we, we remain the greatest society on earth as free-thinking and speaking citizens in the paradise of the globe is to understand the importance and sacrifice made by those that came before us. From the bloodshed on the battlefields to the knockdown dragouts in politics, we pick up right where we left off to ensure that students receive a full-fledged, top-notch 21st century education that will make others around the globe yearn for what you are about to learn. Wow! Nothing stops this train. Be ready because we're picking up right where we left off. Civil rights in chapter 16. Don't have a book, you say? Ha! I'm reading it aloud to you. Each edition of the Tail Lights Pod class will include a lecture. Also posted on my Canvas page is the chapter 16 lecture. A read-along of the textbook to follow and life advice at the beginning. Chicka, chicka, choop, choop, let's roll, baby. This is going to be a lot more like a pod blast than it is going to be like a pod class. Wow! If we had had class today, I probably would have played some music, and we might have had a writing activity. One thing you're uh, welcome to do there at home, or you can put it on the bottom of the questions that you'll submit here when you're done this morning is you can write a little blurb about how you feel about equality uh, in America, how important that is. Have you ever felt like you were ever alienated against or segregated in, in some way, some fashion based on whether you're, you're religious, uh, ethnic, or, or any other type of uh, you know uh, different barriers that have existed in your life? So you go ahead and do that. And I've got a little bit of music as you go through this uh, here today in this ad-free version of the Tail Lights Pod class. There, uh, there will be no ads in these. Uh, they will remain ad-free, of course. That way, you're able to listen to them. And But however, I did put a little bit of music in that you can uh, listen to and, and kicking it right off with uh, something we all kind of need to hear right now, and that is that everything is going to be all right. Here we go, students. Let's roll. plastic cup I said yes ma'am fill her up tell me something good that I don't know cause this world's been kicking my behind life ain't been a friend of mine lately I've been feeling kind of low and she looked back over her shoulder pointed at the sign hanging up on the wall that said Everything's gonna be said that's for sure dropped a few butts in the mason jar felt those good old neon vibes on me and whatever monkey that was on my back he jumped off just like that right into the deep blue sea and i look back over her shoulder thinking about the sun hanging up on the wall let's say Everything's gonna be all right Everything's gonna be all right Nobody's gotta worry about nothing Don't go hitting that panic button It ain't near as bad as you think Everything's gonna be all right All right, all right. 
Before we get going on this today, I would like to simply address something uh, that I know is going around as I got several emails from students yesterday. It is true, I have decided that it is time for this country mouse to return to a town somewhere with hopefully only one stoplight. You see, prior to uh, going on spring break, I did uh, submit my resignation um, and intend to search and eventually be employed as a uh, small school, high school principal once again, which is the line of work that I came from prior to coming to Friendswood. I've enjoyed my two years here. Uh, the people I've worked with have been tremendous. The, the uh, people I've worked for have been tremendous. The, uh, the kids that I've had the opportunity to serve have also been uh, tremendous. That means tremendous times three. Wow! So, with that being said, I would just like to say to everyone, you know, it has a lot to do with uh, different personal decisions. Again, not liking the traffic on the way to work every day, 17 stoplights and a stick shift is kind of like torture. And my dog, old Millie, she's getting a little bit older. She'll be 12 here in May. And it will be nice to be in a place where I could go home somewhere like midday for lunch to let her out for a little bit and her not have to stay in an apartment for 10 to 12 hours. So there's a lot of different factors that go into it. And I hope that all of you know that I'll greatly miss you uh, next year. And I will always be available if you need me. Uh, I will see to it that most of you know where I end up. And uh, if you ever need a job reference or a letter of recommendation, I will be glad to help. Let me also just add very quickly that I, I can't say enough. Uh, how excited uh, I am for many of our cross-country runners. I know you guys uh, I appreciate the emails and, you know, uh, and everything. I want you to know that uh, Coach Johnson coming in is a phenomenal coach. You guys are going to have Coach Bush as well. That, to me, sounds like a dream team. I can't wait to come and watch you guys in Round Rock. Love you kids. Appreciate so much the, the work ethic that you have. Uh, and and that you put into this uh, it's it's a very unrewarding sport at times it's you know it's like I've told you you put in a lot of days of work and then every once in a while you get a, a payday and sometimes that check is is a little bit more than you expected and other times it might be a little bit lower and that sometimes has to do with what kind of work you put in recently but um, you know ultimately you're in control of that paycheck a lot of the time sometimes you're not and that's my life advice for today, kids. Nobody, nobody a few weeks ago could have seen this whole coronavirus thing coming. You, you always think you have, uh, you know, I, I'm a sophomore. I've got two seasons left of softball, plus this one. So three seasons total left of softball or of volleyball or whatever. And then all of a sudden, some ordeal like this happens that you could have never seen coming in a million years. And you've got one less season than you thought. Uh, I really feel for our seniors that are... Um, you know, uh, dealing with this whole situation and having some of their senior year kind of robbed out from underneath them. Uh, and I say robbed, but I mean, it's a situation that's beyond anybody's control. And um, ultimately, you know, I just want y'all to understand, don't plan for tomorrow because it's not a guarantee. You know, we learned that this, uh, this year, as we saw with the Kobe Bryant situation, you know, live uh, go go as hard as you can today to try to make the best that you can for now because later on who knows right and so 
we look at that and and uh, you know it's 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 a frustrating situation but that's okay look at us now we are here getting ready to have a pod blast wow so here we go let's go on forward with the uh, with the lecture well it seems like much like in class where students can sometimes be the disruption my dog has decided to begin being disruptive at the very beginning of the lecture perhaps she needs to go to the restroom and so with that uh, we will take a quick break so that I may take Millie out uh, at this time she has officially woken up she seems to be calm enough let's go forward in our reading today we'll be noticing uh, and if you pick up from slide 89 um, and we, we don't have a whole lot uh, here left to cover and actually no we got to go a little bit further back than that I think we we I believe finished uh, right here at slide 83 which is the 24th amendment which allows for poll taxes uh, to be eliminated in federal elections okay and as I read the text to you a lot more of that will make sense sometimes if information is going to be highly redundant I will quickly skip over it and you will notice how much faster these lectures go with no excuse me with no student participation <laughs> kidding of course anyhow 1964 MLK jr. receives the Nobel Peace Prize okay that's something uh, important that you should know about Martin Luther King jr. and here she's being so disruptive hold on one second well Millie has decided to sit out in the hallway for the rest of this and you'll notice uh, one of the other dogs in the house is riled up over something but we're gonna go forward it's kinda like being in the classroom anyhow so Martin Luther King jr. received the Nobel Peace Prize and one thing you need to know is that at the end of this today or towards the end of this um, the entire I have a dream speech is included it's a speech I always show every year it's about 16 minutes long and I hope you'll enjoy listening to that so looking here at uh, slide 85 Selma Alabama African Americans make up the majority of the population but only three percent of them were registered voters uh, so uh, you'll notice there the sheriff used armed uh, used armed citizens to intimidate African American voters again that's going to be covered more in the text that I read here in just a little bit one second the next few slides are mostly over the uh, the Selma March here okay at the end of lesson two and that's where uh, a lot of what uh, I'll be reading to you aloud here in just a short period of time is over uh, where we pick up off of there in lesson two so we've got a big demonstration here that includes um, 3,000 African Americans being arrested including school children and you're gonna have news cameras capturing this event known as Bloody Sunday uh, on the uh, the march of the state capitol there in Selma and so this is a pretty uh, this is a very wild event I'm sure you can find many good videos on YouTube make sure you get parent permission looking here at the voting acts uh, voting rights act of 1965 kids one of the things that you need to know there is the federal government feels that it is necessary due to the years of abuses of poll taxes and literacy tests to go ahead and send in uh, folks to be involved in the process of basically making sure that african-americans are going to be registered to vote and participate in elections so uh, a lot of things are, are really changed in 1960 there are no african-americans from the south in congress by 2011 okay so this is just nine years ago there are 44 african-americans in congress so lots of big change happening there the the civil rights movement had been successful segregation is going to be outlawed the rights of african-american voters are going to be upheld and discrimination in the workplace is banned so a lot of new changes are going to take place in all different facets of life uh, it, thanks in in much parts to the civil rights act and and the, the civil rights movement of course so you know um, racism is still commonly uh, was still common in american society uh, 1965 70% of African Americans lived in large cities many stuck in low-paying jobs uh, 1960 only 15% of African Americans held professional or managerial jobs compared to 44% of whites and again that's going to be reviewed once again in the text so I am kind of uh, flying past this but the thing that you need to understand is the the place where African Americans are living and the places where they're working in most cases and more than most cases are highly inferior to that of opportunity that existed in this country 
for uh, people, um, white people. So the average African-American income is only 55% of the average for white families. So uh, living off significantly lower wages, which of course would impact you at the grocery store. At that time buying food, at this time buying toilet paper. Half of African-Americans lived in poverty and the unemployment rate is very high. Okay, so it's, these are not ideal conditions at this time. Uh, it's it's um, kind of the, the ending uh, of the struggle as far as uh, a lot of things go legislatively. Uh, however, it's very far from the end of the overall struggle. So uh, there's still a lot of work that's going to be done after these 1960s, uh, the 64 and 68 Civil Rights Acts you're going to have a lot more progress that needs to be made. So this is really, I don't know if you'd call it the beginning of the beginning or the, uh, I, I don't know, it, but it's it, still got a long way to go there, kids. So poor neighborhoods in the major cities are overcrowded. Uh, anytime you have the overcrowding, as we talked about, you can reach back all the way to the early 1900s, uh, 19 to 1920 range. You've got the tenement housing and all the immigrants that are coming over. You have lot of overcrowding because of that you have disease being spread it's very similar in this situation uh, except that in most cases those people living in the overcrowded major cities uh, are often are often African Americans as we've had a lot of urban sprawl as uh, you know the the uh, people moving out to the suburbs and everything to uh, you know it's more commonly known as white flight right so Anyhow, uh, you've got a high infant mortality rate, juvenile delinquency rate uh, is also going to rise as, as kids are going to also drop out of school and, you know, look for other ways to kind of uh, live their life than, than what they're, I guess, just being told, I guess you could say. So, five days after the Voting Rights Act, uh, riots erupted in Los Angeles over allegations of police brutality. These riots became known as the Watts Riots. It took six days for more than 14,000 National Guard members and 1,500 law officers to restore order. Now you'll notice there, there's a typo on that slide. No big deal. Put your R right there before the S. We're good. Anyhow, so these are crazy times. And uh, anytime you have situations like this occurring, uh, it, it's, it's not to say, uh, you know, of course, which side is right, which side is wrong. One side feels oppressed and they're going the wrong way about it. Um, and so uh, it's similar to what we discussed there with Selma and the abuses of the sheriff uh, against African-Americans at that time as well. It's just kind of the other side of it. Uh, eventually, violence is going to slip into some of this movement and that, that's not because, uh, that's not due to Martin Luther King Jr. as he preached nonviolence, as you'll see there in his uh, I Have a Dream speech, which again will be coming up here in just a little bit. Martin Luther King called attention to the deplorable housing conditions. Many African Americans are living in inner city slums as already previously mentioned. So lots of people in one small place and just not ideal living conditions. So that would uh, obviously, as we know right now, many of us are quarantined and you know, in, in smaller settings, we're not supposed to be in groups of 10. And you can see here in our picture, there's quite a few more than 10 in that room. And with that being said, that would not be coronavirus quarantine friendly. Uh, so it's probably not a good uh, situation. Um, so the idea here is to try to make a better situation for many black families as we go forward. Many young African-Americans uh, frustrated with the process of uh, nonviolent protesting uh, begin to look at a different avenue. Uh, for, and that would be known here as black power, okay? We'll be hitting on the Black Panthers and, and uh, Malcolm X and some of that as we go into uh, the textbook here in just a little while. They wanted to uh, be able to control their social, political, and economic direction. Going forward, Malcolm X became a symbol of the black power movement. He criticized white society and the mainstream civil rights movement. Uh, we'll go more into where the X comes from in uh, Malcolm X and some of that as we get into the, uh, into the uh, textbook here in just a little while. Malcolm X had been a member of the Nation of Islam. Oof, that may come in handy on your assignment today. That's the only hint you're going to get. I do get that hint more than once during this lecture here or, and, and the reading. A black separatist group. He was 
uh, it should say later, assassinated four members of this group after he spoke out against the separatist ideas that they pushed. So when he has a little bit of a change of heart about how some of these things should come to be, basically his own people that he was, uh, you know, the, one of the big leaders of are going to end up turning on him uh, for seeing him as someone who has turned on them and he's going to be assassinated by members of this group. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is going to be assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And students, that's basically where we uh, leave off here. So as I often say, uh, let's go forward and here we go. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom 
and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hoped that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro has granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must fail to conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy, which has engulfed the Negro community, must not lead us to a distrust of all white people, for many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is Satisfied as long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote 
and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, 
we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring. From the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. tells religiously like clockwork every time he sees an opening in a conversation about the way things used to be so I just roll my eyes and make a beeline for the door but I'd always end up starry-eyed cross-legged on the floor hanging on to every word Man, the things I heard. It was harder times and longer days. Five miles of school uphill both ways. We were king switch raised a dirt floor poor. Of course, that was back before the war. Yeah, your uncle and I made quite a pair. Flying F-15s through hostile air. He went down, but they missed me by hair. He'd always stop right there and say, that's something to be proud of That's a life you can hang your hat on Had your chin held high Your tear falls down Cuts up dead Chest up gout Like a small town flag of flying Or a newborn baby crying In the arms of the woman that you love That's something to be proud of in college that was mama's dream but i was on my way to anywhere else when i turned 18 because when you got a fast car you think you got everything if i learned quick those gto's don't run on faith i ended up broken down in some town north of l.a working maximum That old hot rod, but you sure save gas in them foreign jobs. Dad, I wonder if I ever let you down. If you're ashamed how I turned out. Well, he lowered his voice, then he raised his brow. Said, let me tell you right now. That's something to be proud of. That's a life you can hang your hat on. You don't need a 
I will be reading here today from the United States History Since 1877 McGraw-Hill Education Textbook. I'm going to tell you something right now. As a teacher that has used several different textbooks over the course of my career, I believe this is the finest textbook that I have ever had the opportunity to work with, from the graphs to the charts to the uh, you know political cartoons and all the different ways that they try to make sure kids are ready uh, when they do come up against the star test, which many of you have to be laughing about now because... <laughs> As I would say oftentimes in class, 78% chance you're going to see this question on the star test. Many of you have to be laughing, thinking 0% chance I'm going to see any of this on the star test since it is canceled. If you were uh, a student that would have been taking this for the first time ever, okay, so this is part of your regular coursework for this school year, you're not a retester, great news with the star test being canceled, you, you will not be responsible for taking that test down the road. But again, as I said at the very beginning, we all know what a silly test that is, uh, how we feel about it. It's just a minor thing that shows that we got the bare minimum of what we needed uh, from our history class. And so I know you all would have done just fine on it. And I kind of am disappointed that it is canceled. But at the same time, you won't be hearing me talk about how there's a 79% chance of you seeing that on the STAR test. Let's go forward as we stroll through one of the finest textbooks I've ever had the privilege of working with. Thank you very much, McGraw-Hill Education. The official sponsor, uh, we don't have a sponsor of today's book. Let's go forward. I know you kids are having separation anxiety from your textbooks, so let's dive in and we'll start right in the middle of lesson two where we left off. I'm gonna begin on page 485, which is actually part of lesson two still because in most classes, this is about where we stopped. So we just have a little bit more to go in this area. Uh, under the subheading, The Struggle for Voting Rights, here we go. Despite the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, voting rights remained an issue. The 24th Amendment, ratified in 1964, helped somewhat. It eliminated poll taxes in federal, but not state, elections. Convinced that a new law was needed to protect African-American voting rights, Dr. King decided to hold another dramatic protest. Our next subsection here, the Selma March. In December 1964, Dr. King received the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, Norway for his work in the civil rights movement. A few weeks later, he announced, we are not asking, we are d demanding the ballot. In January 1965, the SCLC, which you might remember from our uh, lectures earlier means the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Dr. King selected Selma, Ala Selma Alabama uh, as the focal point for their campaign for voting rights. Although African Americans made up a majority of Selma's population, they made up only 3% of registered voters. To prevent African Americans from registering to vote, Sheriff Jim Clark had deputized and armed dozens of white citizens. His posse terrorized African Americans. On one occasion, they even used clubs and cattle prods on them. King's demonstrations uh, in Selma led to the arrest of more than 3,000 African Americans, including schoolchildren, uh, by Sheriff Clark. To keep pressure on the President and Congress to act, Dr. King joined with the SNCC uh, activists and organized a march for freedom from Selma to the state capitol in Montgomery, a distance of about 50 miles. On Sunday, March 7, 1965, the march began. The SCLC's Hosea Williams and SNCC's John Lewis led some 600 protesters toward Montgomery. As the protesters approached the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which led out of Selma, Sheriff Clark ordered them to disperse. Many protesters were beaten in full view of television cameras. This brutal attack, known later as Bloody Sunday, left 70 marchers hospitalized and another 70 injured. The nation was stunned as it viewed the shocking footage of law enforcement officers beating peaceful demonstrators. Watching the events from the White House, President Johnson became furious. Eight days later, he appeared before a nationally televised joint session of Congress to propose a new voting rights law. We're now on page 486. The subsection is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. On August 3, 1965, the House of Representatives passed the Voting Rights Bill by a wide margin. The following day, the Senate also passed the bill. The Voting, right Act, Voting Rights Act of 1965 authorized the U.S. Attorney General 
to send federal examiners to register qualified voters bypassing local officials who often refuse to register African Americans. The law also suspended discriminatory devices such as literacy tests in counties where less than half of all adults had been registered to vote. The results were dramatic. By the end of the year, almost 250,000 African Americans had registered as new voters. The number of African American elected officials in the South also increased. In 1960, for example, no African American from the South held a seat in the U.S. Congress. By 2011, there were 44 African American members of Congress. The passage, <coughs> excuse me, the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 marked a turning point in the civil rights movement. The movement had now achieved two major legislative goals. Segregation had been outlawed and new federal laws were in place to prevent discrimination and protect voting rights. After 1965, the movement began to shift its focus. It turned its attention to the problems of African Americans trapped in poverty and living in ghettos in many of the nation's major cities. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, immediately raised constitutional questions. Historically, each state had been allowed to set the rules regarding eligibility to vote. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution only specifies that each state has to use the same rules for choosing members of Congress as it uses for choosing members of its state legislature. Article 2, Section 1 specifies that each state gets to choose how to select the electors who vote for the president. By banning literacy tests, Congress was imposing a rule on voting, and it was unclear whether Sorry, I lost my place. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> it was unclear whether this violated the rights of the states to set voting rules. In 1966, in Katzenbach v. Morgan, the Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment gave Congress the authority to ban literacy tests and impose voting rules on the state governments. Okay, kids, so now we pick up here at Chapter 16, Lesson 3, New Civil Rights Issues, which is what your assignment is over today. Let's take a look at our first subsection urban problems. Despite the passage of civil rights laws in the 1950s and 1960s, racism was still common in American society. Changing the law could not change people's attitudes, nor did it end urban poverty. In 1965, approximately 70% of African Americans lived in large cities. Even if African Americans had been allowed to move into white neighborhoods, many were stuck in low-paying jobs with little chance of advancement. In 1960, only 15% of African Americans held professional, managerial, or clerical jobs, compared to 44% of whites. The average income of African American families was only 55% of that of the national average income for white families. Almost half of African Americans lived in poverty, with an unemployment rate typically twice that of whites. Poor neighborhoods in the nation's major cities were overcrowded and dirty leading to higher rates of illness and infant mortality. Juvenile delinquency rates rose, as did the rate of young people dropping out of school. Complicating matters even more was a rise in the number of single-parent households. Looking here at our next subsection on page 487, the Watts Riot. Just five days after President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, a riot erupted in Watts, an African neighborhood in Los Angeles. Allegations of police brutality served as the catalyst for this uprising. It lasted for six days and required more than 14,000 members of the National Guard and 1,500 law officers to restore order. Riots broke out in dozens of other American cities between 1964 and 1968. In Detroit, burning, looting, and conflicts with police and the National Guard resulted in 43 deaths and more than 1,000 wounded in 1967. Property loss was estimated at almost $200 million. Looking here at the subheading that says the Kerner Commission. In the same year, President Johnson appointed the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, headed by Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois, to study the causes of the urban riots and to make recommendations. The Kerner Commission, as it began, uh, I'm sorry, as it became known, blamed racism for most inner city problems. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, it concluded. The commission recommended the creation of inner city jobs and the construction of new public housing, but with the spending for the Vietnam War, Johnson never endorsed the recommendation of the commission. Looking at our next subheading, the shift to economic rights. 
In the mid-1960s, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. decided to focus on the economic problems that African Americans faced. To call attention to deplorable housing conditions, Dr. King and his wife Coretta moved into a slum apartment in an African American neighborhood in Chicago. He and the SCLC hoped to improve the economic status of African Americans in poor neighborhoods. The Chicago movement, however, made little headway when Dr. King led a march through the all-white suburb of Marquette Park for de uh, to demonstrate the need for open housing. He was met by angry white mobs more hostile than those in Birmingham and Selma. Mayor Richard J. Daley met with Dr. King and discussed a new program to clean up the slums. Associations of realtors and bankers also agreed to promote open housing. In theory, mortgages and rental property would be available to everyone regardless of race. In practice, little changed. Looking at page 489 with the subheading, Black Power. Dr. King's lack of progress in Chicago seemed to show the nonviolent protests could do little to solve economic problems. After 1965, many African Americans, especially urban young people, began to turn away from King. Some leaders called for more aggressive forms of protest. Some organizations, including CORE and SNCC, believed that African Americans uh, alone should lead their struggle. Many young African Americans uh, called for black power, a term that had many meanings. A few, including Robert F. Williams and H. Rapp Brown, interpreted black power to mean that physical self-defense was acceptable. To most, including Stokely Carmichael, the leader of SNCC, in 1966, the term meant that African Americans should control the social, political, and economic direction of their struggle. Here's a primary source uh, to go with that on page 489. This is the significance of black power as a slogan. For once, black people are going to use the words they want to use, not just the words whites want to hear. The need for psychological equality is the reason why SNCC today believes that blacks must organize in the black community. Only black people can create in the community an aroused and continuing black consciousness. And that is from what we want the New York Review of Books, September 1966. Black power stressed pride in, in the African-American cultural group. It emphasized racial distinctiveness rather than adapting to the dominant culture. African-Americans showed pride in their racial heritage by adopting new Afro hairstyles and African-style clothing. Many also took African names. Dr. King and some other leaders criticized black power as a philosophy of hopelessness and despair. Our next subheading here on page 490, Malcolm X. By the early 1960s, a young man named Malcolm X had become a symbol of the black power movement. Born Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska, he experienced a difficult childhood and adolescence. In 1946, he was sent uh, to prison for burglary. Prison, uh, prison transformed Malcolm. He educated himself and played an active role in the prison debate society. Eventually, he joined the Nation of Islam. That may come in handy on your assignment today. <clears throat> That's the only hint you get. Commonly known as the Black Muslims. Despite the name, the Nation of Islam is very different from mainstream Islam. The Nation of Islam preached black nationalism. After joining the Nation of Islam, Malcolm Little changed his name to Malcolm X. The X symbolized the family name of his enslaved African ancestors. He declared that his true name had been stolen from him by slavery and he would no longer uh, use the name white society had given him. Malcolm X's criticisms of white society and the mainstream civil rights movement gained national attention for the Nation of Islam. By 1964, Malcolm X had broken with the black Muslims. Discouraged by scandals involving the Nation of Islam's leader, he went to the Muslim holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. After seeing Muslims from many races worshiping together, he no longer promoted separatism. After Malcolm X broke with the Nation of Islam, he continued to criticize the organization. Because of this, uh, organization members shot and killed him in February 1965. Malcolm X's speeches and ideas influenced a new generation of militant African-American leaders who preached black power, black nationalism, and economic self-sufficiency. In 1966, in Oakland, California, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale organized the Black Panthers. Black Panther leaders called 
for an end to racial oppression and for control of major institutions in the African-American community, such as schools, law enforcement, housing, and hospitals. Still on page 490, looking at the subheading, Dr. King is assassinated. In March 1968, Dr. King went to Memphis, Tennessee to support a strike of African-American sanitation workers. At the time, the SCLC had been planning a national poor people's campaign to promote economic advancement for impoverished Americans. The purpose of this campaign was to lobby the federal government to commit billions of dollars to end poverty and unemployment in the United States. People of all races and nationalities were to converge on Washington, D.C., where they would camp out until both Congress and President Johnson agreed to pass the requested legislation to fund the proposal. On April 4, 1968, as he stood on his hotel balcony in Memphis, Dr. King was assassinated by a sniper. In a speech the previous night, he had told a gathering at a local church, I've been to the mountaintop. I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Dr. King's death touched off uh, both national mourning and riots in more than 100 cities, including Washington, D.C. The Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who had served as a trusted assistant to Dr. King for many years, led the Poor People's Campaign in King's absence. However, the demonstration did not achieve any of the major objectives that either King or the SCLC had hoped it would. In the wake of Dr. King's death, Congress did pass the Civil Rights Act of 1968. This law, sometimes known as the Fair Housing Act of 1968, outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin when selling, renting, or financing housing. In many communities across the nation, racism had led to an informal segregation. People would simply refuse to sell their homes or rent property to people based on their race. Sometimes banks would not approve loans because of racist attitudes or assumptions that affected the thinking of the loan officers. The Civil Rights Act of 1968 put an end to these practices. The law also benefited immigrants and religious minorities. Historically, in many places in the United States, Jewish Americans had encountered rules preventing them from buying or renting property in certain neighborhoods. The Civil Rights Act of 1968 expanded their economic opportunities as well. The assassination of Dr. King in 1968 marked a turning point in the civil rights movement. After his death, the movement began uh, to fragment, which means to break apart children. With formal uh, laws in place banning segregation and discrimination and guaranteeing voting rights, the movement lost some of its unity of purpose and the vision he had given it. The shift to economic rights was already underway at the time of his death, and it was clear that the struggle to end poverty and provide more economic opportunity would be very difficult and would have to involve very different uh, approaches than the movement had used in the past. That concludes Lesson 3.
Remember, if you have any issues, email me. I will get back to you very quickly. That's a promise.